0: is John chapter 14, and uh, I, last week I really focused more on verses uh, 12 to 15 and then, and then looked at a few verses later on in the chapter, but I really want to focus this morning particularly on verses 16 to 31, but I'm going to, to read again from verses 12 down to the end of the chapter, and if you'd please stand with me if we are able, um, out of reverence to the Word of our God. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Please be seated. You're in a Higgins boat, a small landing craft with thick steel plates charging across the English Channel. It's June 6th, 1944. Your destination? A beach in Normandy. There are 30 of you crammed together in this small craft shoulder to shoulder. One of your buddies next to you vomits from the rough seas, from fear, or from both. Artillery shells are splashing in the water all around your craft. As you look ahead, you see the massive concrete wall built into the hillside and the gun placements. You know that the beach is full of landmines. You're well aware that the hills are full of machine gun nests and Nazi soldiers, every one of them eager to take your life. As you approach the shore, even above the sound of the explosions, you hear bullets whiz by overhead and the tink, tink, tink of bullets hitting the armored bow ramp in front of you you wonder if you're going to survive. The boat hits the beach with a thud, and the ramp drops. In my final year of seminary, Mark Devers spoke in the seminary chapel, and he spoke of his friendship with James L. Price, Jr., a professor from Duke Divinity School. And he relayed a story that he'd heard from Dr. Price, who had served as a chaplain during World War II. And Dr. Price spoke of looking out at the the soldiers, at the faces of the soldiers that he was preaching to on the morning of battle, and wondering how many of them, how many of them would not be there the next day. And and I thought about that, and I wondered about what Dr. Dever was saying, but he went on to say that as he looked out at our faces, Sitting there in a the seminary chapel, a great host of, of young people full of hope and vision, the sad reality was that, that most of us would not make it in ministry. And he said he knew that from sad experience. But the statistics tell the story. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates leave, who enter the ministry will leave the ministry within the first five years of their graduation. And many of us wondered if we would be one of the statistics. I wondered the same thing. I wondered if I would make it. And I wonder about how many of those soldiers in those landing craft on D-Day wondered the same thing. And so Dever said that, that he wanted to exhort us from God's word. He wanted to challenge and to encourage us from God's word so that more of us would make it. So that 40 years later, we would be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have kept, I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he went on to preach an excellent message from 1 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 10 to 13. And as I stand here looking at you, I can't help but wonder the same thing. I wonder how many of you here will remain faithful. Not just how many of you will be here in this church in in a year's time, or five years' time, or or ten years' time. But how many of you will remain faithful to the Lord? And I have been been grieved with a sad experience of somebody that I was walking closely with, somebody in this very church, who is is headlong running away from the faith. So as as you're sitting there, I wonder if you are thinking, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? 2,000 years ago in the upper room, Jesus was giving his final instruction to his disciples. He had just told them that one of them was going to betray him. He just told them that one of them was going to deny him. And worse yet, he had just told them that one of them, or sorry, rather, that he was leaving them. Now, needless to say, they weren't feeling much peace in that moment. But Jesus knew that what's coming for them was much worse. He knows what's going to happen to them in the coming days. He knows that they're all going to flee from him. He knows that they're going to witness his crucifixion. He knows that they're going to suffer horrific persecution, and so he wants to comfort them. But he doesn't comfort them with, with, a, with a pat on the back and a mere, there are there, it'll be all right. He comforts them with the truth. He comforts them with the truth. And Jesus had begun this chapter, verse 14, by telling the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And as the chapter ends, Jesus says to them, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus knows that he's not going to be with them much longer. He knows that that he only has a short time before his crucifixion. He knows what's coming. And so he wants to, to plant these truths deep in their hearts before they rise to go from there. Brothers and sisters, when we walk out those doors, we are walking into enemy territory walking into enemy territory the citizens of the world hate christ and they hate the citizens of christ's kingdom satan is the god of this world he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you and as if that's not bad enough you have a traitor in your midst you take this traitor with you everywhere you go everywhere you go Your flesh will often conspire with the enemies of Christ against you in order to seek to destroy you. This world is far more dangerous than any Normandy beach. So how can we have peace in our hearts, knowing full well how treacherous our environment is? How can we walk boldly out those doors instead of cowering under the pews? Most people seek peace with the world, but what Jesus promises to his disciples here is peace in the world. Peace in the world. We can never have peace with the world if we are followers of Christ. But no matter what circumstances we face, no matter what circumstances we face, we have peace in Christ. We can have peace in our hearts when we know that we have peace with God. So Jesus comforts the disciples by showing them the reality of their circumstances, in verse 27, he promises to his disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And then again he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so he comforts them by telling them that they are at peace with God. shows them, first of all, that they have peace through the Holy Spirit in verses 16 and 17. Then that they, that they have peace in the Son in verses 18 to 20. That they have peace with the Father in verses 21 to 24. And that they have peace from the Son in verses 25 to 31. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. If we are in Christ, we have peace with God. The peace that Jesus gives is peace with the Father, peace with the Son, and peace with the Holy Spirit. This is a very Trinitarian passage. We're going to see references clearly throughout this passage to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, but we'll also see at every point the reality for the Christian as it is contrasted with the reality for those who are in the world. But before we dive into the text, we need to examine the concept of peace. This means far more than just the absence of war, although that is a vital part of it. Christians can have peace even though they're at war. We can have peace even though we are at war with the devil. We are at war with the world and we are at war with our own flesh. We have a peace that transcends all of that a peace that surpasses all understanding. We have peace because we are at peace with God. And peace here reflects that the Hebrew concept of shalom, which was a customary greeting or a farewell. Now here, of course, it's a farewell. Jesus is offering peace to his disciples as he is leaving. But in three days' time, when they are again gathered in an upper room... Peace becomes a greeting as he says, peace to you. Now, peace is a central aspect of the kingdom of God that believing Jews in the Old Testament eagerly anticipated. And this peace finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It was inaugurated at its first incarnation and will be fulfilled in his return. E.C. Hoskins says, the new order is simply the peace of God in the world. The peace of God in the world. As D.A. Carson explains, this peace secures composure in the midst of trouble and dissolves fear. This is the peace which garrisons our hearts and minds against the invasion of anxiety. So let's see how Jesus shows his disciples that they have peace in enemy territory. First of all, disciples of Christ have peace through the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 and 17, peace through the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I explained this week, last week, that this, this was, is an indicative, it is a statement of fact, not an imperative, it's not a command. This isn't a set of conditions, but it is a promise for those who love Christ. Those who love Jesus will keep his commandments. It's a necessary fact. And Jesus will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. These are all indicatives. And the Greek word that is translated helper here is parakletos which comes from the word parakaleo, which means to call to one's side. So some English Bibles just, just uh, uh, transliterate the word and use the word "periclete." But other Bibles use the word advocate or counselor or comforter, and as here is in the ESV, helper. Jesus here is speaking, of course, of the Holy Spirit. But notice that the Holy Spirit is another helper. He's another helper. So that that shows us that, that he is speaking first of somebody else, and that somebody else is him. Jesus Christ is also the comforter. He is also the helper. He is also the paraclete. In fact, in, in 1 John 2 1, this title is given to Christ Himself. Jesus says he must go, but if he goes, he will send the Holy Spirit as another helper. So first, I want to note that the Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is not just a, a force or a power. In verse 17, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit using the pronouns him and he, and he is the third person of the Trinity. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira are struck down for lying about the proceeds of the sale of their property, Peter tells Ananias in verse 5, you have not lied to man, but to God. In lying to the Holy Spirit, you have not lied to man, but to God. But so many evangelicals downplay the work of the Holy Spirit Or ignore him altogether out of fear of the excesses of some in the charismatic movement. But we always need to be careful not to knee-jerk to the other extreme. Jesus doesn't downplay the work of the Holy Spirit, so we must not downplay the work of the Holy Spirit. But we must be guided by Scripture in the power of, guess who, the Holy Spirit. Now, in a little while, we're going to talk more about who he is and what he does from John 16. But let's briefly see how the Holy Spirit gives us peace. You can take the time to look up these references later on. But but first of all, in Titus 3.5, he regenerated our dead hearts. Titus 3.5. John 3.5, he caused us to be born again. John 3.5. John 16:8. He convicted us of sin. John 16:28. Second 2 Thessalonians 2:13, 2, He sanctifies us. Second 2 Thessalonians 2:13. 2, Romans 8:26 and 27, He intercedes for us. Romans 8:26 and 27. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, he is the seal of our salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. But right here in our chapter, in John 14, 16, Jesus says that the Helper will be with us forever. Brothers and sisters, we are never alone. The Holy Spirit will never leave us. But he's not just with us he's not just beside us he is in us he's in us in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came and went for specific times at specific purposes Jen and I were just reading this past week about Samson I really don't understand Samson in so many ways but but Samson who who was was filled with power from the Holy Spirit and, and broke the Nazarite vow so many times, but the Holy Spirit didn't leave him until his hair was cut off. And then when his hair began to grow back, the Holy Spirit came back. And he was able to kill more Philistines with his death than he was in his life. King Saul, I find him even more confusing, who was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied even though he was an unbeliever. But even King David in Psalm 51, when he was convicted about his adultery and murder, said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit came and went for specific purposes, on specific people, at specific times. But under the new covenant, the Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently. Permanently. He will never leave us. He's not just with us, He is in us. And in John 14 17, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. He helps us by guiding us into truth. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. This is true for the first disciples as the Holy Spirit helped them to remember what Jesus had taught them. And it is true for us as the Holy Spirit helps us to understand and to apply the Word of God to our lives. And this is the peace that Christians have through the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also says in verse 17 that the world cannot receive him. It neither sees him nor knows him. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 16, Paul demonstrates that one major difference between the Christian and the world is their view of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 12, Not that we have received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. But the natural person in verse 14 doesn't accept the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. They cannot understand the things of the Spirit. They don't see the Holy Spirit. They don't know the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the Holy Spirit. And so there is no peace for such fools. But then in verses 18 to 20, we, we see that disciples of Christ have peace in the Son. Peace in the Son. Jesus says in verses 18 and 19, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Let a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now some commentators believe that, that Jesus is still speaking of the Spirit here, that Jesus will come to them in the Spirit, and others believe that he is speaking of the second coming. And although Jesus does come to these to to his disciples in each of these ways, in the Spirit and at the second coming, but also in the resurrection, that I believe it's the resurrection, that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying that he will come to them again after he's resurrected. And and he, he shows that by referring to life right here. He says, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. The context shows that it's the resurrection. But in one sermon I read, the pastor said, I don't think the resurrection is the best answer either, because you see, that would only be for 40 days at best. Because after the resurrection, Jesus was only on earth again for 40 days before he ascended to the Father. And this this preacher said that that's a small commodity of comfort. But that would have been a huge comfort. Think about it. Jesus was about to be killed. They were about to witness him being tortured and crucified with their very eyes. He was going to be killed, but he would be resurrected. He would lay down his life, but he would take it up again. This is a huge comfort. MacArthur asks why Jesus says that he won't leave them as orphans, and he explains that that this is the picture of a dying father. That Jesus is really dying. Tomorrow he is going to die. And like a dying father, he says, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. I'm going to come back to you. What a promise. I'll be back. He's saying, I'm going to die. But only for a little, little while. When it's over, I will be resurrected and I'll be back. But as horrified as they will be by the crucifixion and the events surrounding it, as much as their entire understanding of everything was going to come crashing down around them, as much as they will grieve the death of their Lord, they can take heart because Jesus is coming back. But that's not all. They'll have peace with God because of Christ's substitutionary death. But that's not all. His resurrection points to their resurrection. Because Jesus lived after he died, they will also live after they die. Jesus is pointing here to the same thing that he's teaching them in verses 9 to 11. He's teaching them about the unique unique relationship that he has with the Father. He says, in that day, the day of my resurrection, you will know They would understand the Father's relationship with the Son. They would understand the Son's relationship with the Father, and they would understand the Son's relationship with them. As D.A. Carson points out, the relationship between the Father and the Son is, is frequently set forth in chapters 13 to 17 as the paradigm of the relationship between Christ and His disciples. The relationship that Jesus has with his heavenly Father is reflected in the relationship that we have with Jesus. And we relate to the Father through our relationship with Jesus. And a moment ago, it was the Spirit in you, and now it's Christ in you. Christ in you. So again, we see the Trinity represented. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. If you are in Christ, you are not the same you that you used to be. The old man is dead. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ in Colossians 1.27, Paul explains that to the saints, God chose to make known how great among you, sorry, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Beloved, Christ in us is the hope of glory. What peace we have in Christ. But again, in verse 19, we see the situation for believers contrasted with the world. The disciples would see Jesus, but the world won't. At the end of John, of John 13, Jesus had, had completed his public ministry. And in, in verses 14 to 16, his focus was now on his final teaching, specifically and solely with his disciples. He'd said in John 13 that he had, had come into the world as light. And whoever saw him saw the one who sent him. But the world had rejected Jesus just as it does to this very day. And after the resurrection, Jesus would appear to his disciples repeatedly and he would, appeal to, he would appear to specific witnesses, but he would not appear to the world to this day, the world can't see Jesus. Even if they believe in the historical figure of Jesus, of Nazareth, they don't see him. They don't know him. They might even go so far as, as, to, as to, to give Jesus the position of, of a good man or of a wise teacher. But they don't see him as as God the Son. Nor do they see him as their Lord and Savior. There is no peace for the world. There is no peace for the wicked. Next we'll see in verses 21 to 24 how the disciples of Christ have peace with the Father. Peace with the Father. In verse 21... Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The other Judas gets stuck on the, the manifestation aspect and asks him, Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Leon Morris tells us that the answer to the question is love. Love to Jesus will be expressed in deeds. Love to Jesus will be expressed in deeds and the Father will love those who love Jesus. One of the things James was, t- was mentioning to me the other day is the, is the way that, that if, you, if you love somebody's children, the parents will automatically love you. And I've seen that happen repeatedly in this church when, when we, we build a relationship with, with, with the, the kids in the church and, and it just automatically translates into a, into a close relationship with the, the parents of those children. It's a natural fact. But here in the Trinity, it's, it's infinitely more. Because when you love Jesus, you are loving the Father. And the the love that you have for the Godhead comes from God. He gives you that love for himself. Love for God is fruit of the Holy Spirit. And and I know, and I've talked to many of you about about times in my life when I have felt that, that my love for God has not been what it should be even the first time I did an expository message, I was in seminary preaching through 1 John on the assurance of salvation. And I read Jonathan Edwards on the religious affections. Now, if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, Jonathan Edwards will cause you to really struggle with the assurance of salvation unless you're willing to, to, to go to God with a heart of repentance. And he was was talking about how if we love God, it will be demonstrated in a a passion for God. And I had to confess that that I didn't feel it. And so I I began to to wonder, am I really a Christian? I mean, there have been times in my life, glimpses that that I've had a a passion for God. When When I was first saved, nothing could stop me. but I, I believe I drifted in many ways from my first love. And so I did what, what I, the only thing that I could do is, is go to the cross and confess my lack of love for God. Ask his forgiveness, ask him to change me, ask him to, to fill me with that love. And what do you think happened right there on my knees? the Lord gave me assurance of salvation and began to work that passion in me. And and I still feel like I'm just getting a glimpse of it here and there, but what I get causes me to want more. I want more love for Jesus. Is that your prayer? Do you want more love for Jesus? Then confess your lack of love as sin. And go to Christ, who perfectly loved on our behalf. And ask him to fill you with that desire. As I talked about last week, it is out of that that passionate love for Jesus that true obedience comes. I explained last week how we so often put the cart before the horse and and we we try to to obey first. First. And often only. But the type of obedience that God wants, that pleases God, is is an obedience that comes from a heart of love for him. And that is a love that he will return. Now, Last week, we examined the questions, what are you doing and how are you doing it? First, we looked at, at what Jesus did, and then I challenged us all to consider what we're doing and to ask ourselves how it compares. And I know that some of you just, just retreated into, into looking at yourself and, and panic over your sin it's OK to see your sin. It's good to see your sin, but don't ever let it stop there. You've heard me say this a hundred times, and I'll continue to say it, as Robert Murray McShane said, "For every time you look at Christ sorry, for every time you look at your sin, look 10 times at Christ. And I'll add to that, for every time you look at yourself and your sin, look 10 times at Christ and the cross." And out of those things, out of our knowledge for the gospel, what is that going to feed but love for Christ? Love for Him when you consider His his perfect sacrifice as He died the death that we deserved, as He lived the life that we could never live. And we we should never look solely to the law. Because the law was never intended. The law was never able to confer life. But lest I be accused of being an antinomian, I want to just say quite clearly that the law still plays a vital role. It still plays a vital role. It provides a curb against sin. It is a mirror to show us our sin as well. And it's also a rule to help us know God's moral will. This is known as Calvin's third use of the law. Spurgeon called the law the road that guides us, not the rod that drives us. The law shows us what is right and wrong. It is the rule of life. We seek to obey God, then not out of a sense of duty to earn our salvation, but as a loving response to to what God has done for us in Christ in fulfilling the perfect law of God that we could never keep, not even for one second. But, but, we all fall short. We all fall short. Jesus had said in verse 15, if you, if you love him, you will keep his commands. So it's essentially the same thing in verses 21 and 23. But we all fall short of what God commands. So again, this is not ultimately about what we do for Christ, but what Christ has done for us. And the natural response, if Christ has done these things for you, is love for for God. It's the natural response. One plus one equals two. If you love Jesus, you will obey him. Just as a child who loves her parents will be obedient to them. But there's a profound difference between those who walk in unrepentant sin and those who strive against it. And loving obedience is the dividing line between those who are genuinely in Christ and those who are still in the world. Christians will hate their sin. They will confess it to God, asking forgiveness from him and from the others that they have sinned against, and they will grow in their hatred of of their own sin, and they will grow in their obedience. But again, we see the world. Look at verse 24. Those who don't love Jesus won't obey his words, which are the Father's words those in the world are quite content to go on sinning. Now, sure, the denizens of the world might even feel sorrow for their sin. And they might even quit a particular sin for a time. But they will never change. They will never repent. They cannot repent. When you look at a fish, you can see that a fish is perfectly designed for its environment. It has gills so that it can draw oxygen from the water. It has fins to enable it to move through the water. But there's one fish that's different. If you've ever been on a boat in the open ocean in the tropics, you've probably come across this fish. It's a flying fish. These amazing little fish have long pectoral fins that enable them to fly above the surface of the water. They can reach speeds of over 70 kilometers an hour and can can soar above the water for, for more than 50 meters. But the same thing always invariably happens. They end up back in the water again, unless they end up on the surface of a boat But whenever a flying fish is out of the water, it is always a fish out of water. Likewise, a citizen of the world may appear for a time to be a believer, but they will always end up back where they started. Like the dog that returns to its vomit and the sow that returns to the mud, they will go back to their sin and they will find no peace. They'll try to find peace in the very things that God hates, but that will only serve to compound their anxiety. Finally, verses 25 to 31, we see that disciples of Christ have peace through the Son. Peace through the Son. Now Jesus returns to review what he's already told them. He taught the disciples while he was still with them, but now he's leaving. Again, in verse 26, we see the whole Trinity. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son to help them remember what Jesus had taught them. And I alluded to this earlier. We'll be talking about it as well in our hermeneutics class, but this is verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That every single word in the original manuscripts in the Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew was written there because the Holy Spirit worked in the hearts of godly men to write it down. Every single word. Every word. Now, that's true for the over 40 writers of the Bible, but here Jesus applies it directly to the disciples. John MacArthur paraphrases. He says, Men, when I go, you are going to have absolute, with error, absolute recall of every word I ever said. Now, of course, we don't have that ability. It'd be nice, it'd be amazing. But the Holy Spirit also works in our hearts, calling to mind passages of Scripture. It, have you ever found that, that when, you're, when you're counseling somebody or talking with somebody, that, that all of a sudden a, a verse gets pulled out of seemingly thin air that, that directly applies to the situation? This is the Holy Spirit drawing these things to mind. Now all of us need to grow in that as we hide God's word in our hearts but we, we you need to actually read it and study it if these things are going to take place but but the holy spirit helps you to remember what Jesus taught and not just what Jesus taught but the whole of the scriptures. Okay just just a side note here but I'm not really a big fan of red letter bibles. Now I'm not saying if you've got one you need to throw it out. I've got I've got a red I've got a couple red letter bibles but Every, every word in the Bible is the word of God. We don't just take what's, what's there in red and say that's more important, that's more elevated than anything else. Every word in the Bible is the word of God. In verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you my peace I give you not as the world gives do I give you let not your hearts be troubled neither let them be afraid And so Jesus bequeaths peace to those first disciples and to us and this is immeasurably better immeasurably immeasurably better than any million dollar inheritance Jesus is not offering here the type of, of false, fleeting peace that the world gives. Jesus gives lasting peace. He gives eternal peace. And he tells them not to let their hearts be troubled or afraid, no matter what happens. Please turn for a moment to Philippians chapter 4. I hope this, this passage is, is very familiar to you. Philippians 4.4 4. Brothers and sisters, this is the basis for our peace. The Lord is at hand. The Lord's at hand. We need not be anxious about anything. We go to God in prayer. Then Paul continues in verses 8 and 9 and he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Can you think of anything that is more true and more honorable and more just and more lovely and more commendable and more pure and more excellent and more praiseworthy than the gospel? Than the gospel that shows us God and provides the way to God. Think about these things. Think about these things. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Daily, in the midst of trials, in preparation for trials, because if Christ tarries, trials are coming. Many of you are in the midst of trials at this very moment. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Hide Romans 8.32 in your heart. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Psalm one hundred seventeen, 116 verse 7 says, Return, to my, O my soul, to your rest, for God has dealt bountifully with you. If you are in Christ, God has dealt bountifully with you. Preach peace through the gospel to your soul. Beloved, God did not spare his own son. He did not spare his own son for you. For you. What do you have to worry about? What do I have to worry about? Christ is our peace. It's better for the disciples that the son would go away. They should rejoice because Jesus is going to his father. I mentioned earlier, Vy's memorial service was a celebration of life, but far more than that, it was a celebration of what God had done for her in keeping her faithful to the end, because God is faithful. But notice there that Jesus says that the Father is greater than I. Now, time won't allow me to, to go into, into a big excursus on this, but but this is often used as a proof text for Aryans, like those in the Watchtower cult, they're saying that because Jesus is saying that the Father is greater than I, that Jesus is a created being, that he's not fully God. But all three persons of the Godhead are equal in nature, in essence, and in attributes. But in his, in his incarnation, the glory of Christ was veiled as he submitted to the Father and lived a life of humble obedience on our behalf. And even right there in the very next verse, he shows his omniscience. He tells them that that he's telling them these things in order to comfort them. But then in verse 30, he changes tack. He says, I will no longer talk much with you For the ruler of this world is coming, he has no claim on me. Satan is the ruler of this world. The ultimate conflict was about to begin. The one that was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, where the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise his heel. This conflict is about to reach its climax just a few hours later on the cross. But again, as disciples of Christ, they and we can take hope. For as the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a, a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus squared off with Satan on the cross. There was no contest. Satan was defeated soundly for us. For us. Then Jesus says he obeys the Father to demonstrate his love for the Father just as his disciples showed their love for Jesus by obeying him. So this is the call to battle. This was the call to battle to the disciples as as very soon they were going to go out those doors out of the upper room. And all of them, all of them would deny Christ by walking away from him, not as directly as Peter did, but but they disowned Christ. But Jesus was interceding for them. Jesus was praying for them. Jesus had reminded them of the peace that they had with God no matter what happened because of what Christ had done. And then three days later, after the resurrection, they would understand. They would understand. And as these, as these men are, are filled with the Holy Spirit, they would be radically transformed radically transformed from from cowering to bold proclaimers of the gospel, even to the point of death. As R.C. Sproul explains, Jesus' final words are an exhortation. Go from here, gentlemen, girded about with the truth of the Holy Spirit, armed with the word of my Father, and blessed with the peace of God. Let's pray.